Gun. Damn, Jimmy. This some serious gourmet shit. Swoop. Me and Vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried tasty's choice, right? <laughs> Nice brings this serious gourmet shit on. What flavor is this? Like it off, Julie. What? I don't need you to tell me how good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. I know how good it is. Bonnie goes shopping, she buys shoes. I buy the gourmet expensive stuff because when I drink it, I want to taste it. But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. It's Gundam in my garage. Hey everybody, this is Chris. You're listening to Gundam at MHQ, special number six, the Dragon Con extravaganza. This episode will be pretty similar to uh, some of our other convention coverage, like the Comic Con episodes. You'll find Dale and I's daily wrap-ups of each day's events, as well as several uh, interviews and panels that we've recorded. We had originally planned to post these daily, but unfortunately our hotel didn't have any uh, free Wi-Fi access, so it's all being grouped together here in yet another show killer episode. You'll hear my interview with Techzilla and Cora's Veronica Belmont, and you'll also hear two panels, one featuring Leonard Nimoy with a surprise appearance by William Shatner, and the other is a question and answer session with Patrick Stewart. So, without further ado, enjoy the rest of the show. You're listening to Gundam at MAHQ. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go with, I'll go. need a cake but you don't want something boring from the local supermarket or bakery? In the South Florida area, try EpicSugarWorks.com. This bakery specializes in creating cakes based off of your favorite anime series, video game character, or whatever custom design you're looking for. Their online store also features anime and video game themed chocolate lollipops, as well as gift certificates if you want to give something to somebody. So if you're looking for a cake that's above the norm, go to EpicSugarWorks.com. It's epically delicious. Hey, buddy, I'm not paying you to hear your thoughts on life. I'm paying you to sing. Well, I have a microphone, and you don't. So you will listen to every goddamn word I have to say! This segment of Gundam at MAHQ is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. Hey everybody, you're listening to Gundam at MAHQ over at uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Chris and I'm joined by Dale. We're in our hotel room at the end of day one of Dragon Con. We flew up from Miami and uh, hit quite a few things today. So the first thing we visited was the Babylon 5 panel featuring uh, Bruce Boxleitner, uh, Claudia Christian, Tracy Scoggins, and Peter Jurassic. So 
having seen lots of B5 people at other conventions, what did you think of this particular panel, Dale? Actually, Claudia Christian's a real hoot. I had no idea if she could be so funny, even though she kind of dominated the panel. You know, it was kind of fun to hear her banter with Bruce over some sexual references about who has a bigger package, whether it be Michael O'Hare or Bruce Boxleitner, but they had a good laugh about it. And it was just a lot of fun to see them enjoy the show this much later. They seemed like they get along as well as any cast of any show. You know, still have fond memories to share with us. So that was a cool panel, and I'd definitely like to see them again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we've, we've been seeing people like Bruce Boxleitner and Jerry Doyle at conventions for years, and what's always struck me is you get this sense of uh, camaraderie that these people have that they really come across like they're, they're friends, and they just get along so well. And that show's been over for... 11 years, but these people are just joking like, like if they were probably still there, and they have so many interesting stories that they'll tell you at any convention about barfing inside F-16s or having strange encounters and all sorts of stuff, so definitely a highlight if you are a B-5 fan. We also hit up an interesting little uh, musical event. If you've had the ability to see Rocky Horror Picture Show in a theater, you know you're in for quite a show. But here at DragonCon this year, they did something a little bit different by featuring two Joss Whedon musical performances. First, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, and then second, uh, Buffy. So basically you have Dr. Horrible, the video, with Neil Patrick Harrison, Felicia Day, and Nathan Fillion playing on a couple of screens. And you have actors in costumes lip-syncing and acting it out, just the same way that you would at a Rocky Horror Picture Show, except that it's Dr. Horrible, and it was quite amusing. Unfortunately, I had to skip out after the first two acts, so uh, anything that stuck out in the, uh, the third act there, Dale? Well, the third act was kind of similar to what you saw, but the real change for me was the Buffy Picture Show. Having seen it last year, I can tell you they upped the ante with more props and makeup this time. And actually, I think that's a more difficult show to do because if you've seen Once More with Feeling, the musical episode, there's a lot of dancing in that. So the actors did a really good job, you know, choreographing to what was being shown on screen, so... I know that for Tanya, that's a big highlight, and I enjoyed it myself very much. It's probably going to be a yearly tradition at DragonCon if I come again next year. So did they end up doing the whole episode? Yes, it was the whole episode, and Dr. Horrible and that episode are roughly the same length, so you've got basically a two-hour block with two musicals back-to-back, and that worked out pretty well, actually. So I had mentioned that I was a bit surprised that uh, the audience was so involved with uh, Dr. Horrible. You know, they were speaking the dialogue, they were singing all the songs, so between that and Buffy, which one would you say had the crowd more involved? I'd have to split it about equally. There's this rampant Joss Whedon fandom, having been to Comic-Con. Everybody knows his name is attached to any panel. It's going to be a packed room. He has a very loyal fan base that continues to follow him, no matter what show he works on. So that was uh, later in the evening. I missed the rest of Dr. Horrible and Buffy because I split off to visit the Sword and Laser live podcast. Uh, if you're not familiar with Sword and Laser, it's a uh, podcast hosted by Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt. You've probably seen Veronica Belmont on uh, Sony PlayStation's Core, on Techzilla, on This Week in Tech, both tech people, but on the side they do this podcast where they uh, talk about sci-fi and fantasy books. It's, uh, it's an online reading group. They pick books, people read along, they discuss them on the podcast. So this was their first live show, and as their special guest, they had Timothy Zahn, 
who is probably very familiar to you if you're a Star Wars fan. He wrote what's known as the Thrawn Trilogy, which I haven't been able to read yet, but uh, he shared a lot of interesting insights about what it's like to work with uh, Lucasfilm and work with characters in George Lucas's sandbox and the freedoms and restrictions that come with that. There's also some discussion of books that were recently on the podcast, such as George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, which I highly recommend, as it was an old review on the Fantasy Animation HQ that morphed into MAHQ, so if you're with us from that far back, you probably remember uh, hearing me talk about that book at some point. So uh, you'll actually hear me making some comments on that podcast, so don't know when it's coming out, but just look up Sword and Laser and you'll hear me there. Sort of a new experience being in the audience side of a live podcast rather than behind the mic doing it, so... That was a fun experience, and everyone there who was in the room got a free Sword and Laser t-shirt, so it was a win-win situation. We certainly ran into some strange people tonight, so what did you think of the uh, various sorts of costumed people that we saw later tonight? Just going through one hotel alone out of three on the way back to ours, we ran into a giant white ape, a barbarian carrying a giant hammer, and uh, a man sex slave, all in the same lobby, so just getting through that was interesting enough to say the least. Yes, and this is all in the span of like two feet of each other. You've got a Yeti, a barbarian, and some guy walking around in a pair of underwears with full-sized, uh, full-leg boots. It's a very, very strange experience and certainly gives new meaning to the creeps come out at night. So that's the end of day one. Tomorrow we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we'll be recapping, including the Dragon Con Parade the Patrick Stewart panel, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So you'll be hearing that in the next segment. You're listening to Gundam at MHQ, not quite live from DragonCon. Let us do no such Gundam thing. people to feed off as I had yesterday. Uh, we had a sort of 
um, uh, tonight show situation with a sofa and, and two interrogators uh, uh, who were, oh, hello, um, who were, um, just in case there's any confusion, <laughs> who I am. Um, I, uh, so I'm on my own this afternoon, which is what I'm used to. After all, I worked on Next Generation. I was totally alone. No support, no help of any kind from my colleagues. Just opposition. Bitterness. Resentment. Uh, but you see, I am being lighthearted. I just can't help it. I try to be serious, but it seems to be an impossibility. I am told I have been in Atlanta. <laughs> I am told, I am told, I am told I have been in Atlanta before. <laughs> I, I'm told I have been at a convention in Atlanta before. I, I do not recall. But 1992. Understood. <laughs> they meant well. 
They just wanted to play cricket. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> experience. I, I came from New York by train on Friday afternoon. Uh, I love train travel and I take trains whenever I can. I like uh, uh, traveling by air less and less, although I am returning to New York this evening um, on a plane. I hope it's a plane. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to see something of the eastern seaboard particularly south of New York, which I didn't know at all, and it was a beautiful journey. And as I said yesterday, um, I, I feel as though I am a public service announcement for Amtrak, because every aspect of my journey was delightful from the moment I arrived in a lost and confused state at Penn Station, not knowing where to go or what to do. Um, the, the help that I was given uh, was first class, and uh, my accommodation was comfortable, um, the, 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 the attendance um, thoughtful and uh, informed too. Um, I did have a brief lecture. My, you see, my uh, the, the, uh, the car attendant on my car was in fact a retired uh, physics, I think, physics teacher um, who was now working for Amtrak and loved his job. So he was able to tell me uh, a great deal about the the. Uh, countryside we were going through and uh, indeed um, he pointed out that is Bull Run there, right there, you just went past <laughs> this is the spot where the Union troops unloaded before the Battle of Manassas uh, absolutely fascinating, it's in the air there would have been none of that it, it would have just been another flight um, and I woke uh, as soon as it was dawn so as to see as much of Georgia as possible and it's ravishing. It's so beautiful. And I wanted to stop the train, get out, and just wander through those gorgeous fields and woods. But if I had, I would not have been here. And here, being here has been absolutely delightful. Um, when I do this, I talk a little bit about what I've been doing, what I'm going to do. I can't tell you much about what I'm going to do because. Um, I've sort of called a halt to work for a while. I've had five, six very happy, but very intensive and very productive years of entirely stage work, which was a deliberate choice. <laughs> a deliberate choice. Um, I, I wanted to um, rediscover the world that I first entered as a 19-year-old actor. By the way, this month is my 50th anniversary of being a professional stage I know, um, I should have more to show for it. But there were a lot of quiet years before they began to get exciting. And um, so, uh, I became an actor because, purely because, I wanted to work on stage in classical theatre. There was no other reason. And so for the past five years, I have been returning to that original passion, um, which has involved me doing Shakespeare and Ibsen. And uh, most recently, uh, Sam Beckett, because we have just finished, Sir Ian McCallum and myself, and Simon Callum and Ronald Pickup have just finished a uh, six-month run in 
waiting for Godot. Godot. We say Godot. Um, but we say a lot of things that are weird and peculiar. And we mostly say them in order to confuse Americans. <laughs> and it works. Uh, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, six, seven months. Um, but it's good that it's hot because I can get to watch television in the evenings, go for walks, have a glass of wine at lunchtime, not worry if I've had enough sleep, and not worry perpetually about the condition of my voice. Uh, and I'm taking a big chunk of time off, several months. In the middle of Waiting for Godot, Godot we uh, filmed the Hamlet that I was in earlier in the year with uh, David Tennant. Uh, David is a hero of mine too, a uh, wonderful actor and a delightful person. And um, I believe that this will be shown sometime, I think it's being aired at Christmas in England on the BBC, and I believe uh, PBS here will be screening it, so watch out for it, Hamlet with David Tennant. Uh, and then in November and December we are filming the production of Macbeth, which I brought here to New York last year. These, these have been my only ventures into film in, since, uh, uh, since uh, X-Men, um, uh, the third movie, and uh, I have no plans for any more uh, at the moment. I'm told that there is a, an X-Men movie in preparation. Um, which might include the old team, um, though a slightly younger version of the old team, but I have um, no more information than that. Next year I will do two large, important stage productions, and that will be most of my year. But the second one, uh, hopefully, will uh, transfer from the West End stage to New York. And so I will be back on Broadway again, I hope sometime in 2011, early 2011. In a nutshell, that is me. Um, and so I'm now going to do what is conventional, as convention, and uh, turn it over to you. Eric, is that right? That's what we're going to do. And there will be microphones, yes? Oh! So I don't get to choose. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. It, makes, it makes my job easier. Which side should we start, left or right? It is my inclination always to go to the left. But, uh... <laughs> Never know who is listening. <laughs> okay, let's start. or in the room with you. My name is Irma. <laughs> and here is my question for you. Um, now that Star Trek TNG has been off the air for too long, um, is there anything in Picard you wish they would have changed or um, would have done differently or put them in a direction that you didn't get a chance to explore when it was on the air? Thank you very much. No. 
Um, Jupiter's Gene and then uh, Rick Berman were very attentive to um, those areas that I felt could be explored a little more and uh, they, they were mostly attended to and um, uh, maybe a touch more romance would have been nice <laughs> for me. Um, I don't have much in my life and uh, you know, if you fake it on screen it's better than nothing. <laughs> I am pathetic sometimes, <laughs> and um, I embarrass myself, and it's just happened again. <laughs> uh, I I'm very, very proud of everything that we achieved with Next Generation, <coughs> in every respect. Um, and the question came up yesterday about what would I most want to be remembered for, and uh, yesterday afternoon I answered that I hoped that what I would be most remembered for I had not yet done. But if it were all to come to an end this afternoon and it, were, it was that I was remembered for being at uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta and we were talking about Star Trek The Next Generation, that would be fine by me. Aww. Okay, next. Do you want to borrow mine? Oh, oh. So, uh, you can you tell me and I will tell them. Just repeat okay. it the audience. Um, I was wondering uh, two things. What was, what was the, uh, I guess, the, uh, what, what, you, what was your favorite um, scene to do? And what was the worst scene you had to do? Thank you. The question is, uh, two questions. What was my favorite scene uh, to perform in uh, The Next Generation? And what was my least favorite? Well, um, I should really have had notice of this question. Um, I liked all the things that involved physical activity. I loved all the riding sequences, the fencing, the squash, the mountaineering. Um, anything that got me out of that chair. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I work, I love working with each one of my, uh, my colleagues and dear friends, um, all for different reasons. Um, I think one, one, one sequence of scenes that stands out for me has to be, um, it, was it Chain of Command 2 with the torture sequence in it? Was that what it's called? I'm, I'm hazy about titles. Um, and that's because it was a terrific script. That was the three lights, four lights, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a really great script and uh, we had uh, had some consultation with Amnesty International USA about that, of which I'm still a very active member. And it pleased me that we could get some of their input into one of our episodes. But what made it especially exciting for me was that I got to work with an English actor, David Warner, who played the vile Cardassian, who was talking to me, because David Warner 
I was the leading member of the Royal Shakespeare Company when I joined as a junior and I played a very small supporting role to his Hamlet. And so to have the opportunity to be on camera with David Warner, even though he was being unkind to me, <laughs> was, um, was a great treat and excitement and I, I loved that in every way. Um, the least pleasant. Uh, I have to tell you that being in that Borg stuff was just awful. Um, especially the semi-nude scenes. Um, because those things were stuck to my flesh. And uh, it took a long time to put it on and it took a long time to take it off. And um, it was uncomfortable. And uh, I was always glad when those, when those sequences were done. I'm trying to think if there was anything that really was really unpleasant. And um, honestly, in seven years, I can't think of one. Which is a nice way to earn a living, isn't it? Thank you.
something to do with the rocks. I can't really remember now. But Michael does claim that after one particularly difficult and complex shot, I turned to him and said, you know, the last thing I remember, I was working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> How did I end up here? That was actually the very same... I'm not sure if I should tell this story or not. <laughs> if you, I, I, why should you remember? But Dr. Crusher was stuck in the rock for some reason. I, I don't know why she was. Um, and something collapsed on her. Yeah. Um, and we had moments to pull her out. And the director said to me, I want you to reach into this hole past these rocks and, and just get hold of Gates under the arm and, and just pull her out. And I, uh, so they, they called action and the cameras rolled and we had to rush forward. It all had to be done quickly because there were special effects happening. And I reached out for Gates and instead of getting her under the arms, I put both my hands on her breast. I scream. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure if Gates ever really accepted my apology and <laughs> believed that it was totally accidental. I think she thought Michael had put me up to it. No, it was a I can tell all of you now, it was an accident. And um, I'm really glad it happened. <laughs> mm, not much romance, you see. <laughs> make do with whatever comes along. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Yes. Hello. Oh. Oh, you're coming over there. Yes. Yeah. Where are you? Keep your hand up. I'm hiding in the speaker. Hi. Hello. Hi. My name is Beth. Um, I have a quick question for you. I'm sorry if you answered it yesterday. I didn't make it in the door. But um, was there a moment that you feel you really settled into Captain Picard's character, or do you feel like that grew over time? Or was there one defining moment for you that you just said, ah, this is who he is? I can do this. Did you all hear that question? Yeah. Yeah, Never been asked this before. It's always a new one sometimes. It's good. Well, um, that happens with every role, hopefully. Uh, sometimes, if you're really, really unlucky, it doesn't happen. But there does come a point when um, the internal and the external life of the character and the actor come together. And when that has happened, you feel then that you can be put as your character into any situation and know how he would behave, what he might say. For instance, you can improvise if necessary. <clears throat> um, you need some water, my dear. You really do. Are you okay? Oh, you should move to another state. <laughs> I know, I get them too. 
I've had a ticklish cough for six months. But it went when I arrived in Georgia. You caught it. You took it from me. Um, uh, for instance, uh, this past winter, rehearsing Waiting for Godot. Um, one afternoon in the rehearsal room, I knew how to stand. I mean, literally, how he put his feet on the floor. And having found that, so many other things followed very quickly because I, I became rooted and other aspects of the character were quick to follow. Now with Picard, it, it was a long time ago, you know? um, it was over 20 years ago. Uh, I, I do recall the first time I had to walk onto the bridge. I don't know whether it was from a turbo lift or from the ready room. And I found myself walking same arm as leg, like this, um, because I, I felt so awkward and self-conscious. I, I don't think it happened at all during Encounter at Farpoint. I, I was still very much finding my way. I think it was several episodes before uh, I could begin to say, that I was truly comfortable with this character. Um, of course, we were never really comfortable because we were in that darn spandex <laughs> for, um, for two years. But then there, at some point there came a time when you could have put me down anywhere in any situation and I could have improvised Jean-Luc Picard. I no longer, there came a time when I no longer sat in my trailer and prepared to become him, which I, I used to do, um, I could turn on a sixpence and be him. And probably that's also because I allowed him to get closer and closer to me. So I had to strain less and less and less to be someone else. Does that make sense? That's the best I can do. Thank you. I don't know that I'm allowed to pick people out. We have a system operating here. We have a riddle of one of your younger fans. Hi. Yeah. Who am I dressed as? Oh, I, have, I have a red shirt. I'm in every episode, yet I'm in only one. Jean-Luc Picard with hair. You know, I'm terrible at riddles. I really, really am. I just can't get them. So, does anybody else know the answer to this riddle? Yes, go ahead. Adorable, but and he had this. It was very funny to watch him do it. 
So he was, it's, it's little you. So he's you, but he's not you. Mini you. Is <laughs> that correct? Thank you. I thought you were riddle. Is she right? Yes. You look handsome and adorable. Um, but I have to tell you, I have no recollection of this episode. None. I don't remember there ever being a little me. Oh. You say Ensign Rowe was in it? But she didn't show up until later on in the series. Might have been, you know, they used to release me so I could go to New York to do Christmas Carol and other things. And whenever they did that, they used to, very generously, Rick Berman would see to it that I was written very light in the episode before Christmas and very light in the episode after, so they could shoot my stuff at the very beginning and then at the very end to give me enough time to, to uh, work in New York or wherever. And it could have been one of those. Um, and so it sort of... And by, it's not affectation. I truly cannot remember. Anybody remember the title of it? Rascal. Rascal or cools, is it? Plural. Rascals. Rascals. Nope. Nope. Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll go and go through my DVDs. <laughs> I get home. <laughs> I, I, I was, uh, uh, not long ago, um, well actually a year or two ago, I was in Vancouver, I, well it must have been more than a year or two because I'd arrived in Vancouver from London that evening to start work on X-Men or I was in the middle of working. And, anyway, I, they, they, they put me up in a hotel for one night because we were going out to Vancouver Island the next day to film, um, I guess, Xavier's uh, Academy, which was on Vancouver Island. And um, I was very tired and I'd ordered some room service and I was sitting in the room flicking channels, you know, and, and up came Next Generation. And like this episode, you see, it might have been this episode, I couldn't remember anything about it. And so I'm, I'm sitting there watching it, the doorbell rings, and it's room service, and the guy comes in with my tray. And I say, thank you very much. And he turns to go out, and he sees the TV screen. <laughs> and there's this guy, looks like me, in the uniform on the TV screen. And it was just awful, because you know that he went back to the kitchen. And, and he said, I have just seen the saddest thing. <laughs> I, I can't help it. I watched a little bit of uh, Nemesis the other night. Was it Nemesis that was on? Was it like Friday night or something? Yeah. No, it could have been Friday. I was on the train. Maybe it was Thursday. And I turned it off because I got embarrassed. <laughs> Nobody was going to come in, but I suddenly thought, what if the phone rings and I answer it? 
and they hear that Nemesis is playing in the back. <laughs> and moving on. Yes. Okay, well, um, first off, everybody wants me to tell you that technically you did get it right with the little kid's riddle. It was you with hair. Though I haven't seen you with hair and I, Claudius, and didn't look anything like that. Uh, anyway, my question was, um, what would you say was your favorite part about filming Star Trek Next Generation? The people. Uh, I've worked with some wonderful companies, most particularly in the last few years, but the people, uh, the cast, the crew, our guest actors, the uh, production staff, absolutely remarkable group of people. And I miss them horribly. And uh, we uh, email and we communicate and we meet up whenever we can. Um, but I miss out on a lot of things. I miss Gates' wedding. Um, that was the best part of it. Oh, and, you know, earning a living for the first time in my life, too. <laughs> I mean, really, wow, that was, that was, that was uh, an added bonus. Um, Working at Paramount was fun. Uh, you know, I'm a movie buff, and, and I never, in, in what, 12 years, I never, ever got past the thrill of driving through those Paramount gates. <laughs> Especially when, unlike the first time I arrived at Paramount, which, is, which was for my final callback audition for the studio, well, the captain, when I arrived and they took one look at me and said, okay, you're going to have to park off lot. So you turn around here and you go back up the gates and, uh, you know, if you drive over these streets here, you'll find some free parking over there. And uh, that didn't feel too good. And it was only because uh, our wonderful hairdresser, chief hairdresser for the first few seasons, Joy Zapata, was in the car behind me and she jumped out of the car and yelled at security, Don't you know who this is? <laughs> um, so, but it was very nice in the months to come and the years to come when arriving at the, those front gates uh, every morning that somebody would say, Good morning, Mr. Stewart, or Good morning, Captain, which is what I often do. That was, that, was, uh, uh, that was a big treat. So, no, yes, over here. Hello. Hello. Um, my name is Phoenix. Um, I want to say first, uh, you are just an amazing person as well as Matt and I. I love you talking about everything you have to talk about. So I want to thank you for that first. So. And uh, my question, my question is, um, I know that uh, most of my favorite episodes uh, had to do with you dealing with with Dr. John Delancey, uh, who was a brilliant actor. And uh, my favorite episode is Tapestry, when he brought you back in time and you saw uh, a different version of yourself and things of that nature. And uh, I was wondering, um, 
what was your favorite episode dealing with uh, John's character, the Q, and uh, how did you feel about that episode? Thank you. Tapestry, you say it was called? Did you hear I got, the, the Kardashian got me in the heart? Yes. Ha! Ah, yes! I remember that. Yes! And there was a younger me. Not a, not a kid, but a sort of teenager. Yes! Yes, I remember that. And a very good actor with red hair played somebody else. Played another character. Oh, played Crusher's husband. Is that right? Jack. Doesn't that impress you that I know that sort of stuff? <laughs> and I had a fight in a bar. Yeah. I got stuck in the heart. Yeah. <laughs> what did she say? <laughs> um, right. What was my favorite episode? I like, you know, different things, different episodes for different reasons. Um, I was, I was especially proud of and pleased to be in uh, the episode Inner Light because it was a terrific script, a great script. One of the very best we ever had. And my son was in that episode too. And so it was, that was the first time I'd ever actually worked with Dan. We have worked together since then. Um, and I got to be someone other than Jean-Luc, which was interesting. And I found it, I found it very emotional, that uh, particular episode. Um, but you know, I loved all the Dixon Hill episodes. I loved anything that kind of took me out of uniform and away from the ship. All those things were fun. The, the, uh, the, the um, uh, Sherlock Holmes stuff, uh, they were great fun. Um, I, uh, or, or any time we went on location, which was usually every third or fourth episode. It, it, the problem is, with questions like this, that it's beginning to be a bit of a blur. I, I, I remember in uh, distinctly certain moments, um, but, you know, seven years and, what was it, 173 episodes, they've all sort of blended one into the other, I'm afraid. But thank you for the question. Yes. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Um, my question has to do with your voiceover and animation work. How did you get roped into doing animation and especially working with Seth MacFarlane? And is voiceover acting more challenging for you since you don't have anyone to play off of or do you find it easier than acting opposite other actors? Thank you. I got into voiceover work because I have one of the greatest voices in the industry. <laughs> Embarrassed again. <laughs> I, 
I am a child of the radio. I didn't own a television set until I was 23. Well, when I was a kid, only one person on my street had a television set. They were the only family that had a car. We, it, was a, it was a poor working, very poor working class neighborhood. And uh, these people would occasionally invite me, I don't know why, they'd never invite anybody else. This family would invite me to their house on a Saturday night to watch television. Now here's the thing about it. This will amaze and delight you. On a Saturday night, the program didn't start until 7 p.m. There was nothing. The screen was blank. And then 7 p.m., up it would come. There'd be, um, I think, a little bit of news. And then the very first program would be a quiz show called What's My Line? Um, and then it would finish at about 10 or 11. And that was it. That was the day's television. One channel, three hours of... So, I grew up with the radio. It's one of my earliest memories, is having the radio on. And still the radio, I would say, represents 80% towards 90% of my media uh, exposure during the course of any day. If not the radio, then, you know, CDs or music, whatever. Um, and then the other, then sort of 5% of that is taken up with newspapers. I'm a newspaper addict. Um, and very little TV. So, the sound of voices was always really meaningful to me. And one of the most exciting things in my life was that when I did a play for BBC television, um, in the, sometime about 10 years into my career, one of the actors in the series playing a small supporting role was a radio actress who I had heard on the radio since I was a child. And not meeting anybody has been a bigger thrill for me than to meet this particular woman with this great voice. So voices always had an impact on me. I, as a child, I admired John Gilgood because of the way he sounded on radio, and I tried to copy him. Um, and it was therefore natural, I suppose, that I would be drawn to doing work which only involved my voice, which is why I do enjoy doing narrations, especially enjoy um, uh, voicing animated characters. It's a fascinating technique, especially when the character has already been created, when you're having to lip-sync to uh, animation, um, and you're having to become that character. With most important animated movies, the voices almost come first, and, and then the animation is done to match the voice. Um, but uh, why did Seth MacFarlane and, uh, 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 and Linda invite me to be an American Dad? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I just got invited and sent the script. And I thought it was some of the funniest stuff I'd ever seen in my life. And I, I was just, I, I was really charmed by the idea of the head of the CIA being an Englishman and nobody noticed. <laughs> It's great, because, I mean, it implies a level of stupidity, you know, in the most important intelligence organization in the world, that none of them notice that the head is English. Um, and I have loved uh, 
voicing um, Chief Bullock immensely. And partly because we laugh so much all the time. Um, I break up because what the things they give me to say and do are so outrageous. Um, and uh, mostly I do them in, in London. So we're on a phone patch with LA. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to start work very early because I can't do any voice work after 4 o'clock because I'm on stage in the evening. So they're, they're in the studios at 8 a.m. And uh, we, have a, we have a terrific time. And then they've had me, they've hauled me in to do little things on Family Guy as well, which is also brilliant. And um, I'm, uh, I'm really proud of being part of that work, I think. I think they are groundbreaking writers and uh, filmmakers. Um, and although sometimes it's kind of shocking what they, what they present, um, I, uh, I, I, I get a great kick out of, out of uh, being Bullock and I hope it goes on and on and on and on. Thank you. Favorite memories of making some of the feature films, other than uh, Star Trek, you mean, or do you mean just uh, Star Trek feature films? Star Trek feature You need to say, you see, because <laughs> it may surprise you, but I have been in some other films. <laughs> oh, what do I remember? I remember vividly. You see, most of the things I remember to do with physical things, because I enjoy them so much. I remember firing the Thompson submachine gun in, I think, First Contact. Um, and it, it was real. It was an authentic Thompson submachine gun. And although it fired blanks, it was as if it was firing real rounds. Um, and that was, that was exciting. I mean, I'm not a weapons person at all. But partly because of the history of that particular weapon and that I had seen it used in so many movies. That was, I was about to say, it gave me a kick. It did give me a kick. It gives you a lot of kicks. Oh, I enjoyed fooling around on the boat at the beginning of some, one of the movies we were in fancy dress. Do you remember? I can't remember the movie. Generation. Generation. The first one. Of course it was. Yes, because we, we finished the series the week before and then we went out on this boat in Santa Monica Bay to, um, to, uh, to wear those lovely uniforms. Um, and um, I do remember vividly working with the beautiful and talented Donna Murphy, which was something always to look forward to in the mornings, getting up, fun, thinking that I would meet Donna before the day was out. Um, great locations. Oh, the Valley of Fire in uh, Nevada, where, where Captain Cook died. Remember? Yeah. A big bubble? He doesn't remember that he died. Mr. William Shatner is a kidder. 
You like to have fun. <laughs> he remembers perfectly well. You know it's become a shrine, that spot? Yes. Yes. People go there, they drive 60, 70 miles out of Las Vegas to the Valley of Fire, not because it's one of the most extraordinarily beautiful places on the planet, but because Captain Kirk died. <laughs> Great vacation. Um, oh, thank you, yes. Yes, you see, I need somebody at my elbow, proxy. Um, that was fun. The dune buggy. Most of those shots, that was me. Um, there was a moment, a tiny fleeting passing moment, when I thought the studio were going to give it to me. But it passed by. And I think we got a blanket instead with the Paramount logo on it. I haven't finished talking about the Doom buggy. Yeah, that was fantastic. Because it was built, and darn, I can't remember the man's name, but it was built by one of the countries, the United States, leading constructors of racing vehicles of that kind. Uh, so it was built to the highest specifications. Um, and they, when it was just long shot, they wouldn't let me drive it because it, it, it was rough terrain and it would go fast and it would, could have turned over. Um, but um, the best part of all was having Michael and Brent in it. <laughs> because you know, you're driving, there were sort of tracks and trails, and sometimes we were not on any trails at all. But there were these kind of rough, thorny bushes that grew out there in this crowd. Well, it was always great to drive very close to one on the side where Brent and Michael were. <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> uh, um, and what about that takeoff? Right into the ship. That was good, wasn't it? That wasn't me. I remember Jonathan Frakes coming back from a convention once, <laughs> telling us that I, I, I guess it must have been after an episode, and saying you'll never, you'll never guess what someone said in the Q and A at this convention. This person stood up and quite seriously congratulated me on my manual docking technique. <laughs> that is suspension of disbelief. By the way, Mr. Frakes, I just want to congratulate you on your manual docking Jonathan Frakes couldn't manually dock a bicycle.
one more quick question from a lady who's no, been waiting very patiently. Eric, I'm just warming up. We don't want to do any more of that staining stuff, do we? Just want to hear and spend the rest of the afternoon. What was it that Judy Garland said? I know, I know. I'll stay all night and sing them all. I think she said, well, I one more question. I, Slave driver, taskmaster, Eric insists that there's one more question. I, I appreciate greatly having that last question, and I think I'm about to become very unpopular as it's not Star Trek related. You can I, stop now. I would really like to hear your thoughts on your production of The King of Texas as to where you, just in a few seconds, where the inspiration came to set Lear there and to congratulate you on one of the most beautiful productions of Lear I've ever had the pleasure to watch. I don't care if you're in trouble for not asking a Star Trek question. If, you, anybody, if anybody gives you any trouble at all, you come talk to me. <laughs> I will sort them out. Um, because it's actually quite nice to have a non-Star Trek related question. Uh, because although it was an important part of my life, it was only part of my life. Um, the, the King of Texas was my idea. I had a production company. In, well, I still do. It just doesn't do anything at the moment. Um, and I didn't run it. Uh, my, my wife, Wendy Noose, ran the company brilliantly. And I was having a drink with the great Robert Tolmey, the head of Hallmark Entertainment. Um, one evening we were going to dinner and, uh, and he said, uh, is there anything you want to do? Anything you're thinking about? And uh, I had actually only that afternoon had an idea and I said, uh, I've been thinking about taking Shakespeare's story of King Lear and setting it in the American West. And God bless it. And there are a few people with the power that he has because he said, we'll do it! <laughs> right there! Right there! I mean, you know, we'd hardly had a sip of wine. And, and, and the next morning, would you believe it, they were negotiating contracts. It was fantastic. That's, you know, when one man has the, the power and the artistic judgment to run a company and to make those kinds of decisions like that, it's, it's fantastic and rare. He didn't have to consult a committee or a board. Um, so uh, we commissioned, I, I did a breakdown of all the characters in King Lear and tried to find parallels for them in the American West. And obviously a rancher with a vast spread of land would have to stand for the nation of Britain. Um, and it would have to be somebody who had sole and complete power and authority over that, so it would be a wealthy, rich and powerful um, landowner who would have to have three daughters, that was the easy part. Um, and uh, we had a great script commissioned, and uh, Wendy and I produced it. Well, she did all the producing and I did most of the acting, and uh, I uh, got to that is as close as I've got to playing King Lear. But I'm very, very proud of every aspect of that movie because we've never produced anything on that scale before. We were on location in Mexico every single day, working day. We filmed all over Mexico. 
um, sometimes in quite difficult conditions. But the Mexican crews were brilliant. We had a German director and a largely Mexican crew. And um, it was, um, you moved. <laughs> you were there. How do you do that? You go like that. Did you see him go move? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, transported stuff. Anyway, I could talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about it, but it really wouldn't because I do have to be somewhere else. But it was, uh, it was in every respect an amazing experience. I got to take part in a roundup. And, and the roundup sequence, if you recall it, that was all improvisation. There were no marks, no moves, you go here, you go there. No, uh, uh, David Allen Greer and myself were just let loose in a whole lot of scary cattle. <laughs> but we did, have, we, did have, um, uh, we did have Mexicans on horseback who knew what they were doing. Uh, but can you imagine what it's like for a, a classical English actor to be free riding in a situation like that? Unforgettable. So I'm, I'm a lucky man. Thank you, you've been absolutely terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Jolly, the artist of Patrick This segment of Gundam at MAHQ is brought to you by Petco. Hey everybody, welcome back to Gundam at MAHQ. Coming at you from Dragon Con in Atlanta. This is our day two wrap-up. It's the end of the day, after midnight. Sitting here again in the hotel room, exhausted, with Dale. How you doing, man? Very good. Tired, but good. Before we get to all of the things that we did today, you had some leftover thoughts from Friday. Well, Friday, one thing we didn't talk about we're going to touch on today is we keep getting sent to the wrong place in line. Whether we're being told there's an official or unofficial or this line starts here or there or for which panel or whatnot, it seems like things keep getting moved around on us. So that's going to kind of be a topic we're going to start off with on Saturday's schedule. Also, uh, one thing that we didn't mention yesterday was that, unfortunately, William Shatner had a panel Friday morning, very first thing while we were still in the air on the way to Atlanta. So, unfortunately, we missed that. And he was still wandering around taking paid photographs with Leonard Nimoy somewhere today, but we missed that too. So, the big adventure we had today in the early afternoon was uh, jumping around, trying to get in line to see Patrick Stewart. What did you think of the whole misadventure we went on trying to, like, jump around the Galactica line to finally get to Stewart and then getting to Stewart? Well, after the Babylon 5 line ending up being the Squidbillies line, you'd think that would be the worst we could do, but simultaneously we were giving three different reasons for the Patrick Stewart line. One was, this is the Battlestar Galactica line. The other one was, this is the Patrick Stewart line. And the third one was, this is neither line hasn't started yet. 
And it, none of those were true. It was actually an unofficial line, which became the official line, which by the time we figured that out, we ended up somewhere towards the middle, which actually ended up granting us some pretty good seats, but we just wished DragonCon could be consistent on where they're going to line people up, you know, give us straight answers. Yeah, that does seem to be a continuing problem that you ask three different people the same question and you get three different answers. So that's been an annoyance these, these last two days. So Patrick Stewart came out, did a talk show style interview, talked for a bunch of different topics like his little train right here, talked about Star Trek, talked about X-Men. What did you think was the most interesting part of what he was talking about? Well, it's kind of good how Patrick Stewart's embraced his uh, love of Star Trek. You might remember in the past he's kind of trying to distance himself from it, trying to be typecast, but I guess in his older age he's become very comfortable and happy with his role and being known for it. So, I mean, he was praising it and said if, if he dies today, and if he's remembered just for that, he'll be very happy. So he's very comfortable with, you know, his history on Trek itself. I liked when he was asked about his thoughts about working with Nimoy on the TV show and with uh, Shatner in Generations, and he described Shatner as a piece of work. With a big smile on his face and a giggle, so uh, it was very respectful, but, you know, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny if you were there in person and, and saw it. I also liked when he was asked the question about Nemesis and, and Fane, the reaction that he didn't know that it had done badly, and he was hearing this for the very first time. He buried his face in his hands and said, no, tell me it's not so. <laughs> that was some great stuff, and you'll hear that later in the show since we recorded the panel. So um, given that we missed out on Patrick Stewart coming to Orlando about four years ago, what did you think about finally being able to see him today? It was everything I expected. I mean, it was a big buildup. I've been waiting many years to see him. Might thinking that I might never get to see him because he doesn't do that many conventions. So it was a real treat. He's very personal, very fan-friendly, and actually looking forward to seeing him again tomorrow. It was definitely worth it. Yeah, this is, for people who aren't that familiar with the con world, Patrick Stewart hardly ever does conventions. And in this odd year in 2009, obviously he's not promoting anything Star Trek because Nemesis was seven years ago. He's not promoting anything with X-Men because he only had a tiny cameo in Wolverine. So it's not like he was here for any specific promotional tour so the fact that he even appeared here I think was rather amazing and certainly was a huge huge incentive for coming to this convention so after that uh, we ended up splitting up after lunch you went off to get a signing from Terry Gilliam so how was that experience and what was he like oh he was very friendly I mean he was greeting every fan taking photographs with them signing multiple items he was just, just a very personable guy especially a big talent like him with a, a new movie coming out you know, an accomplished director like that. It's nice that he would take the time out to come to a convention this far away from Hollywood to meet his fans. And I was quite lucky. I ended up six people ahead of the cutoff of the line. So I just barely got in. And he actually stayed signing for an extra hour and a half to make sure everybody that wasn't that original line got something. So that was really cool. And he stayed there given that his panel had uh, started late and ended late, right? Right. So, I mean, he was probably getting pretty hungry by then because he had a panel back-to-back -back with a ended up being a three-hour signing. It's a good chunk of his day right there. Still had a smile on his face by the time I got to him, so that's, that was a very neat experience. And uh, Tanya's not here at the moment, but she had gone off to get some True Blood Blu-ray signed by the author of the original books that the show is based on. And I split off to go to the um, Sword and Laser podcast meetup. Spent about an hour talking to other fans of the show, talking to Tom Merritt, Veronica Belmont. Actually have an interview with Veronica that you'll be hearing somewhere later on in the show. And definitely an interesting experience just hanging out with people who listen to a podcast and, you know, talking about it when that podcast is something other than Gundam, so. 
it was it was an interesting thing to do. After that, boy, we uh, we saw some interesting things because we had some tickets to go to the Georgia Aquarium, and there was this mysterious bus that kept passing by full, and we missed it, and we thought it was coming, and I was running down onto the sidewalk, fall, rip open my favorite pair of jeans, bust my leg open, bleeding all the way down my leg, and then I miss the bus. Dale and Tanya, they're just riding on the bus, and I have to sort of like half limp with my belt tied around a paper towel, covering my <laughs> cut-up knee, walking to this aquarium. But it was definitely a great experience seeing, you know, whales and sharks, and, and we're there surrounded by, you know, Trekkies and some guy dressed as Zombie Billy Mays and a bunch of other weirdos. So that certainly was something. And even before that, in the evening, we saw some creep dressed as Julius Caesar who was riding in a horse-drawn pumpkin wedding carriage down the street. And I'm convinced that he just stole it from the guy who was on dinner break because he just looked kind of insane and he wasn't accepting any passengers and he was just kind of going down the street. What did you think about that weirdo? Actually, I saw that carriage giving rides earlier, officially. And it did not have Julius Caesar in command of it, so I think you're correct. That was the most bizarre thing, him going down the street right in the middle of it in his so-called chariot, but it was really a pumpkin carriage. And that just adds to the whole bizarre, what's seeming to be a theme here at night at Dragon Con. And every night we see something very unique. Yeah, and we saw that carriage later with, like, the regular guys, so I think that guy just took it for, for a quick little ride around the block. Well, what happened after the aquarium? We went to the, oh, we came for the uh, Galactica party, and what, what happened uh, before the party? I was looking around the room, and I guess I must have locked eyes accidentally with a very strange bleach-blonde-haired man who promptly came over and introduced himself and was drunkenly leaning on me with his arm around me, talking about his theories for the new Caprica show for Galactica, talking about what if the beginning is the end is the beginning, and it turns into a sequel to a prequel of itself, and <laughs> kind of rambling on and... I just played along with this guy until he finally got fed up and, and went away, but I was someone I, I really tried to avoid the rest of the night. I don't know how I even ended up being a target for this, but... And, and mind you, as that started happening, and, and this drunken guy comes over and he's introducing himself to us, uh, as he starts talking to Dale, I quietly slipped away, walked around some fat guy, and emerged on Dale's right, and let him be my human shield so that he could be subjected to talking to this guy. So, that's... Uh, the kind of wonderful friend that I am, isn't that right? Uh, I was just grace leaving me to this twist in the wind with that drunken freak of a man. Hey, what can I say? There's all sorts of weirdos in, inside uh, this place, too. We saw a Man 6, which was totally unnecessary. Uh, there was a Silent Bob in the corner. There was a Stormtrooper who seemed kind of out of place. And mind you, we're inside uh, this ballroom that's filled with colonials and people dressed like Six, and people dressed like President Roslin, all occasionally shouting, so say we all, and you got, like, stormtroopers hanging out. And they started playing some, some crappy disco, and we made our way to the, to the front near the stage, and there was this Irish Care Bear that was, like, just dancing like there's no tomorrow and, like, grinding with some girls. It's very, very odd. And then tell us what happened when the main event started. Actually, very cool. I mean, if you know the history of the Battlestar parties, I've actually never been to them. But it's kind of cool. It has a, a tendency for the cast to actually show up. Usually one or two cast members of the convention will actually show up. Now that the show is over, the people that are running the parties are saying this is officially the last one they will have. And it was quite a shocker when pretty much everybody that scheduled this convention showed up on stage. About six or seven of the main cast. You know, you had characters like Rosalind, you had Ty, you had... Pretty much everybody. And Anders. Ellen Ty, uh, yes. Kat, Duala, Gaeta. 
Yeah, it was a real shocker. Everybody showed up. They were all, you know, rallying the crowd. So say we all. Cheers from the show. It and was, all drinking. Yeah, they were cheering, drinking. Even some left into the audience to mingle with the crowd. It's sort of uh, surreal when you see Colonel Ty holding two Heineken cake cans. One hand. In one hand, and he jumps down from the stage into the audience, and he's just uh, surrounded by a whole flock of sixes, which was kind of creepy, just seeing them all, like, descend upon him, taking pictures, and uh, he actually got a picture with Tanya with his, his can of beer wrapped around her, her shoulder, which was rather interesting. And at that point, we kind of split because, you know, then all of the drunken galactic partying was going on, and... Well, I'm already forgetting. What had did anything weird happen after that? What well, continue after that? We, oh yes. We slipped from the party, ended up with the crosswalk with pretty much the whole panel. Yes, we're walking behind these same actors and just walking behind them for a few blocks as we're back to the hotel, crossing the street back to the hotel to finally make our way back to the train. And we saw some more weirdos along the way. Well, it's kind of an interesting ride. Once the train hits the shuttle, last night the shuttle was filled with a rambling drunken man who sounded like he had no teeth or had way too much to drink, and a woman that was about to throw up. <laughs> yeah. Tonight, it was an entire football fan group, including like two mascots, a bunch of cheerleaders, people with face paint on. Everywhere you look, it's like Virginia Tech jerseys. Just flooding like a sea of crimson. Yeah, I don't know what we'll see tomorrow. Seems to be like a different theme on the uh, shuttle bus every single night. So we'll, we'll see what we see tomorrow on our shuttle ride back. I get the distinct notion that there was some other weird thing we wanted to mention that we're leaving out. Can you think of anything? Uh, we'll probably have to include it in the opening segment tomorrow. It's just too tired for me tonight. Yeah, this is the end of the day, and we're going to go to sleep because we got to get up early tomorrow for Leonard Nimoy because he's uh, first thing in the morning. Lovely. But hey, it's Leonard frickin' Nimoy, so... What can you do? I think that pretty much does it for us today on day two of Dragon Con. You're listening to Gundam at MAHQ, and uh, there'll be more coming up soon. End of discussion! Debate is over. You will write a formal apology. I will what? A formal apology! You will kowtow, you will step and fetch. Frank, if you think you can get me... Get used to it, it's the way of the world. If you're so hot on discipline, then Gun. damn it, start by accepting mine. Because contrary to popular opinion, I'm the head in charge. Come on, let's get something to eat. You really think you're bad, don't you? This episode of Gundam is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. Right now they're offering special discounts to our listeners. Just simply go to GoDaddy.com and use the code GUN5 for 10% off your order or GUN6 for $5 off any order that's over $30. Or if you ever wanted to buy a domain name, you can get one for the low price of $7.49 if you use the code GUN7. For more information, you can go to Gundam.net and click on the GoDaddy link in the Sponsors and Special Offers section. Don't wait too long. The domain name you've always wanted might be claimed by someone else before you know it. Register with GoDaddy.com today. Jules, you give that fucking Nimrod $1,500 and I'll shoot him on general principle. No, Yolanda, Yolanda, he ain't gonna do a goddamn motherfucker. Hey, bitch, shut the fuck up! 
everyone, you're listening to Gundam at MAHQ, not quite live from Dragon Con in Atlanta. This is Chris, and I'm joined right now by the lovely Veronica Belmont from Sword and Laser, uh, guest on uh, This Week in Tech, also co-host of um, Techzilla on Revision 3. How are you doing, Veronica? I'm good. How are you? Great. So, uh, this is our first Dragon Con, both of us. Uh, what do you think so far? I'm absolutely loving it. It's so much fun. I've gotten to meet so many great people, and we're just having a blast. How's it compared to uh, West Coast conventions like uh, Comic-Con? <laughs> That's a big question everyone's been asking. Um, Comic-Con is a little easier to get around just because everything's in the one convention center. Um, I've gotten a lot more exercise in, this past, in the past three days than I probably have in the past six months, which is good, but also really exhausting when you're only here for a weekend. Um, but the panels are a little more my speed here. I think Comic-Con's getting a little bit more mainstream, and Dragon-Con still has a lot of the really great you know, MMO panels, and, and I learned about filking, which I had never heard about before this weekend. You'll have to enlighten me on that. Filking, I guess, is like folk music about science fiction, and any of your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, because I really don't know that much about it, but that was the gist that I was getting. You probably hear a lot of filk in like Firefly or Serenity, they do a lot of music in, in, those, in that show and movie. Um, what else? Yeah, the panels are just a lot of fun. I've gotten to meet a lot of great authors and a lot of great artists, and so it's been a really great weekend. So how was it doing your first live show last night for Sword and Laser? It was probably my favorite show we've ever done. The show itself is so community-oriented and so based on the opinions and things that our community has to say that to actually have them in the audience participating and speaking up when we had discussion topics or questions really made it a lot more lively, and I hope we get to do it more often. Since many in my audience probably aren't as nerdy as I'm about this subject, uh, why don't you <laughs> briefly uh, tell us a bit about Sword and Laser? Sword and Laser is a science fiction fantasy book club and podcast. Uh, we usually podcast about once or twice a month, um, pretty much when we finish, have the time to finish a book. It started out as just a book club, and we were writing blog posts about things, but we both have a really you know, long podcast background, so it was kind of the next logical step to start recording our thoughts and talking about it with the audience. Um, we've been doing it, we've had 20 episodes of the podcast, no, 23 episodes of the podcast so far, and we've been doing it for about a year. In the uh, books that you've read along the way, was there any that was really surprising to you that you said, wow, this is a great book that I probably would have never read on my own if not for this club? Hmm, never read on my own. I don't know if I can say that. The one book that I had a lot of trouble with was Memoirs Found in a Bathtub by Stanislaw Lem. And I couldn't get through it. It was one of Tom's favorite authors, and for some reason or another, it just didn't grab me in that way. Every other book we've read, I've had a really wonderful time with. Like, we've read Neil Stevenson, George R. R. Martin, uh, a lot of authors that I've actually read the books of before. But it was really nice to kind of go back and revisit them and get a different point of view on the storylines and the subject matters. So, since you do um, a lot of uh, podcasting for work, what's it like doing a podcast on the side for fun, like Sword and Laser? <laughs> it's kind of freeing because, you know, I can have a couple cocktails and do a podcast for Sword and Laser. Can't really do that on Texella or Core, um, unfortunately. It'd probably make things go a lot more smoothly from time to time. It's fun, you know, it's, it is kind of like work in a way, but since Tom, have I, Tom and I have been friends for so long that it's really just kind of second nature to get on Skype or get together with our mixer and just talk about the books that we're reading. 
A lot of uh, my listeners are video game fans, so tell me a bit about your work with Core and how that got started. Um, the way that I started working with Core is that uh, it's owned by Sony, but produced by Future US, his magazine publisher. And I had done some writing for PC Gamer, primarily about World of Warcraft in the past. I covered the launch of um, Wrath of the Lich King at BlizzCon a couple years ago. And so, when they were looking for a host that knew about video games and also had, you know, decent on-screen talent, they thought of me, because uh, they knew about my work with Texella and knew about my work with um, on CNET and Mahalo Daily. And so they, they called me up, I started coming in, talking to them, and it's just been a really good fit. I mean, I enjoy getting to meet the developers and the artists involved in the creation of games. And I like traveling, although it is getting a little exhausting, but we've had a lot of fun doing it. How, how do you find the time to manage all of these different things you work on with Revision 3, Core, all of these things? You sort of like are everywhere for people who are into like tech and all these nerdy things. Um, I have a lot of different projects, it's true, but no sleep? No, I'm kidding. I don't know, it just kind of all falls into place. You, you, you make the time when you're really passionate about what you're doing, you kind of make the time to get it done. Speaking of video games, this probably sounds really retarded, but it's something I've been curious about for a long time. Being part of the video game world, do you run into a lot of people who make Castlevania jokes or references about your last name? Every day. Every day. <laughs> well, maybe not every day, but cumulatively every day. Sometimes there's multiple references in one day, so you can carry that one over. Um, no, it's pretty funny. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's actually... It's kind of hard to explain. It's my, it's my stepfather's name, so I, I kind of came into the name. Um, and when I did, I, I thought it was pretty funny. You know, growing up, I got a, once in a while someone would make the connection. But really, once I started doing video games was when they started talking about it all the time. But they would talk about it like I didn't know. They'd be like, hey, like, are you from the, the Belmont clan in Castlevania? I'd be like, yes, yes, you should see my work with the whip. It's amazing. And you kind of have to make jokes about it because they think it's funny. It, it is funny. The first hundred times? The first, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I've just been wondering about this anyway, but I was telling a friend of mine about all of the things I was going to see here, and I mentioned you, and he didn't know who the hell I was talking about. So he jokingly asked, is she part of the Belmont clan? Does she hunt vampires? Yeah. And I figured, wow, she probably gets that all the I time. I really should. Um, I think for Halloween this year, maybe I'll have to get costumes together. You you could be you could be Sonya Belmont, yeah. the first and only female Belmont. There you go. I can sort of sympathize because obviously people who are listening won't see this, but I have this scar right here on my forehead. And oh, I used to work I used to work in a bookstore at the very beginning of the Harry Potter craze. <laughs> and it used to be visible the way I comb my hair. So with oh. the glasses and the scar all the time, oh you look like Harry Potter with the scar, oh blah 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 blah. And they would just throw at me all these things. Yeah. I've never even read Harry Potter, which I mean to someday, but they would talk. It's a great series. It's yeah. Really fun. But they would start talking to me about all this stuff in addition to always asking when the next one would come out. Yeah. They'd say, hey, do you know you look like Harry Potter with that scar on your forehead? Like, no, really. I didn't. <laughs> thanks. I have never heard that ever. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for being the 5,000th person to bring that up. I think that's probably why I comb my hair this way now, so, so I, I can sympathize. All right. Good. That's nice to know. <laughs> So, um, still on the subject of video games, do you find that um, as a female gamer that people are maybe um, 
surprised that you play video games or that you're a tech geek and they just don't expect a girl to be as nerdy about video games as they are? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to kind of over-defend yourself a little bit in that regard. They don't, I mean, once you can, if you can talk the talk and walk the walk, then they kind of believe it, but you do have to kind of step up your game a little bit, so to speak, and, and convince them, unfortunately, that, yeah, I do actually know what I'm talking about. Yes, I write my own scripts. Yes, I do play video games. Yes, I do play other video games other than World of Warcraft, but... I'm pretty fortunate that I've been doing this long enough that, you know, people kind of know what I'm about and know that I'm legit, and that, that is important to me, and I'm glad it has worked out that way. Out of all the various projects you have your hands in now, whether it's personal like Sword and Laser or professional, what do you enjoy doing the most? I get this question all the time, and that's really hard because I like them all in different ways. Um, Texel is really fun because, like, Patrick and Roger are like my family, you know, I've known them for so long. sort of being adopted into the rather incestuous circle of <laughs> Tech TV alumni. That's the best part. I mean, sometimes That seems to come up me. a lot recently. Uh, it, was on, it was on This Week in Tech, and uh -huh. Roger just mentioned a few minutes ago. What did they say on ago. This Week in Tech? Um, it was uh, Leo commenting to uh, Calacanis about how everything was rather incestuous with everyone working together, yeah. either on This Week in Tech or on Revision 3. Well, I mean, that's kind of how any industry seems to get after a while. You know, I mean, people meet people, they bring them into the fold, then they help them find other projects, and that's really what networking is. And, you know, I, I, I kind of fell into it all working at CNET, who had so many tech TV alumni, and then going to Revision 3, which basically had everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's been a really wonderful thing. It's like a, it's like a second family, and it's just fun being able to help people with their projects and step in and talk about a different topic that I don't usually get to talk about. And, uh, you know, when new people come into the fold or new people get to hang out, it's really wonderful because it's like a breath of fresh air, you know, a different point of view once in a while. Uh, but it's also really comfortable. It's nice. Because even, uh, even as just uh, an audience member, you know, I've been following Tech TV alumni for many years. I've been listening to This Week in Tech ever since it was Revenge of the Screensavers. So I find looking at the podcasts I listen to, the shows I watch, people I follow on Twitter, it's just sort of all this, like, same group with everyone in everything. You know, sometimes I, I forget that I was not, like, with the Tech TV crew at the time. It was a little, it was definitely before my time, but it's, um... They're, they're just wonderful. They're all brilliant, and they've been doing it for a really long time, and, and they know their stuff, and they have the experience that I really draw upon when I do my own stuff. Well, uh, thank
thank you for your time, Veronica. A pleasure talking to you. And uh, before we go, shaking um, hands. You guys yes. can see, but we're shaking hands. Why don't you uh, hit us <laughs> up with the URLs where we can find all your stuff at? Okay, yeah. My personal blog is veronicabelmont.com. My Twitter is Veronica. And you can find Sword and Laser at swordandlaser.com and techzilla.com. Great. Well, that's uh, the end of this interview. You're listening to uh, Gundam at MHQ, not quite live from DragonCon. More coming up soon. Boy, it's lucky you had these cards. Use them for smuggling. I never thought I'd be smuggling myself. And this is ridiculous. Even if I could take off, I'd never get past the tractor beam. Leave that to me. Goddamn fool! I knew that you were gonna say that. Who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? GoDaddy.com. Hey everybody, you're listening to Gundam at MAHQ, coming at you from Dragon Con in Atlanta. This is the day three wrap-up. Once again, this is Chris, and I'm joined by Dale. We're uh, sitting here after hours at the end of the day in the hotel room, trying to remember every single thing that we did today. How you doing, man? Pretty good. So uh, let's start off with, again, some things from the previous day that somehow slipped our minds, and one of the most obvious ones was the Saturday morning parade. So uh, why don't you uh, give us some thoughts about that? Well, we seem to forget something every day. Yesterday probably being the longest day we've had thus far. It was easy to forget what we did very first thing in the morning, but it was definitely one of the coolest things. And when you think of a parade in a convention, you think of maybe some costumed people just walking down a street, but that would be a mistake. This is a full-fledged parade with vehicles, floats, groups from different shows like Resident Evil, Star Wars, Star Trek, and you're talking groups of 50-plus people per group. This is like an hour-and-a-half-long parade that's as good as any official parade. And it did make major news network coverage. And you see this parade streaming down. You see 50 or 100 stormtroopers in all sorts of customized armor. You see Klingons. You see people from Wheel of Time. You see people from Firefly. You see people from Doctor Who. Everything. Stargate. Any, any sort of like sci-fi or fantasy universe that you can imagine has throngs of people represented and they just marched down ghostbusters vampires i mean anything you could think of it was there weird hippies i mean it, it was all anything anything you could picture was there in this parade and it was definitely a sight to see because it's certainly not something that you see every single day in the downtown streets of a uh, metropolitan city. Any other thoughts you had from yesterday that occurred to you? Now, as far as yesterday, I think we covered it pretty well, just the glaring omission of the morning parade. <laughs> Otherwise, that's a wrap for yesterday. So today we had to get up early this morning to get to the Wright Hotel because there was a panel with a certain Leonard Nimoy. You might have heard of him before. Obviously, this was one of the main reasons that we came to this convention, the other being Patrick Stewart, so you've already met Leonard Nimoy, you bastard, seven years ago or so, so uh, despite that, what was your anticipation going into this seeing him again? Well, having missed the big Shatner Nimoy panel on Friday and being kind of bummed, I was anxious to finally get my last shot. This was his one of only two panels he was doing at the convention, because they canceled one of the afternoon ones, so I was prepared for a big crowd. So I was looking forward to seeing him talk about other things than photography, 
because that's primarily what the event was that I went to seven years ago. So we, you know, got up pretty early for this panel today in anticipation of that. And the panel itself was called uh, Leonard Nimoy, Beyond Spock. And there were a lot of good questions focusing on wide variety of uh, Mr. Nimoy's activities. You know, if you're familiar with his work outside of Star Trek, he was on Mission Impossible for two seasons right after Star Trek was canceled. He did a lot of genre TV before Star Trek, just like uh, William Shatner did. He's obviously directed a few feature films, uh, Star Trek 3 and 4, uh, Three Men and a Baby, some other stuff. Most recently, his big passion has been photography, and he's got a couple of photography books. He does photography projects, so a lot of the discussion was about that. And even though this was my first time seeing him, it was a refreshing change to have the subject be on something not Star Trek, because, I mean, I've seen so many Star Trek actors at conventions, and it gets kind of samey, even if I'm seeing new people, because the audience always invariably falls upon the same tired questions of, how did you prepare for this character? What was your favorite scene? What was your favorite episode? Et cetera, et cetera. So it was kind of nice to have this directed discussion where most of the questions were about non-Star Trek things. Of course, Star Trek did creep into the discussion every once in a while, especially in the last 15 minutes after a very strange story that Nimoy told about some woman breaking into his hotel while he was filming the 1976 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And as soon as he finishes telling him uh, that's this uh, very odd story about this woman who stole his clothes and wore them and then returned them, a uh, certain man just popped out of nowhere onto the stage, and that would be William Shatner. So what did you think about that moment when he uh, finally appeared? Well, that was pretty exciting because, you know, we can hold a glimmer of hope that we might catch him somewhere else in the convention, but it was looking pretty bleak after he wasn't showing up at any of the schedule changes. A lot of us thought he would be gone by today. So it was pretty cool, and actually I didn't even know Tanya had spotted him peeking his head around the curtains looking for the opportune time to crash Nimoy's panel, so to speak. Yeah, which she neglected to tell us. And it was pretty funny, because when he came out, I think it surprised most of the crowd. And there was a rumor floating around that he might still be around, but we didn't know if he was going to pop up during Nimoy's panel. And it completely took over the discussion, because Shatner just basically pushed aside the moderator and started questioning Nimoy himself. Yeah, it basically turned into Shatner's raw nerve. Which Nimoy actually commented on, and Shatner introduced himself by, you know, asking, what's really beyond Spock? Come on. And he referenced a couple early episodes where Nimoy hadn't quite gotten to the character yet with smiling and laughing and yelling too much, and it was kind <laughs> of poking fun. It was really fun to see the banter between those two. I mean, they seemed to really get along well, and it kind of, it was something probably we'll never see again. You see these guys, like, you know, shucking and jiving, and you can see that there's a very strong bond between these two guys. It's been there for over 40 years, and it's interesting to see they get along, since obviously uh, it's been known for quite a long time that certain other cast members have or had feuds with Shatner, but you could definitely see that he and Nimoy are, are good old friends. So uh, after Shatner and Nimoy, we had to uh, get out of that room, and then go through a whole rigmarole with uh, lines, which we'll get to later, to get in line again for Patrick Stewart. Now, on Saturday, uh, he was part of a sort of like Johnny Carson talk show panel where he was sitting on a couch and was asked questions by uh, a guy at a desk, and there weren't any fan questions. This panel, on the other hand, was entirely different. Uh, it was totally unmoderated, and uh, it was just people asking Stuart all sorts of questions. Some people, they touched upon some of his other work. You know, there were some questions here and there about X-Men, uh, some questions about some of his 
theater work, a lot of questions about Star Trek, some of them interesting, and some of them just the standard stuff you expect. So um, what did you think of this panel today, which we're including in the show, versus the talk show panel from the previous day? I'm really glad we taped it, because we were considering not taping it. We already had the first panel. Didn't know if it would be that much different, but really glad we did. I think this was the better panel, and it was very interesting. I mean, Stuart answered some similar questions, but for the most part, it was very different, and there were a lot of funny anecdotes. You could go through some of them, but I mean, it was really enjoyable. He was standing in front of the stage the whole time, taking questions from just about anybody. Uh, Unfortunately, we couldn't actually get any questions in ourselves because the moderator wouldn't come to the front for some reason. Yeah, it's like uh, they didn't let him pick who uh, would ask questions, and they just disappeared in the crowd with the mics, and we never saw them for that whole hour, so it was totally unclear like how it is you got to be selected to ask a question, which is a shame because the question I had was totally unrelated to Star Trek, because I try to make a point of asking original questions that stand out, and I didn't have that chance. One thing that kind of caught my attention, even yesterday, but especially was more apparent today, was that we know that Stewart doesn't really do too many convention appearances, and looking at both of these panels, I think he might be the kind of guy that is perfectly comfortable being on stage in front of a bunch of people acting, but when it comes to public speaking where he's the focus, I don't think he's really accustomed to that. Did you kind of get that impression, especially yesterday at the beginning of the Saturday panel? Stuart has a reputation for being a very strong character and a voice, even when he's doing the parodies of himself on Family Guy, you know, he's very clear-spoken, but in person he's a little more soft-spoken, he's a little more relaxed, He was a little more relaxed than I expected, actually, in person. He's not exactly like the characters that he portrays. But what I mean is, I I think it took him a while to... um, Adjust to the audience? Adjust to the audience and get into the room of things. So I noticed that at the Sunday panel was a lot smoother than the Saturday panel. I think he, like, got used to it because, unlike a lot of his uh, his colleagues, he doesn't really do the convention circuit, so he probably doesn't have as much... And he doesn't know how to work the crowd, like... Shatner, crowd experience. Shatner devours the crowd. Yeah, because he's done a zillion of these things. Yeah, I mean, certain people know how to work the crowd. It's Stuart, you know, it, you can tell he hasn't done the convention circuit in a while. I mean, on a regular basis. Yeah. So... That in itself was a little interesting because, you know, we're used to seeing actors who you know, have been doing this stuff for years and years and years, and they're very familiar with, you know, the convention dynamic. After that, we uh, just had some lunch, walked around to a couple of places, and eventually had to come back for another line, this time for the Battlestar Galactica panel. And there were so many people on it that it probably would be better to say who wasn't there rather than to try to list who was there because there were so many people there. So, if you're a Galactica fan, picture this. Most of the major cast, minus Edward James Almos, minus Apollo, no Starbuck, no Chief, although he was apparently wandering the con no as boomer. a guest. No Boomer, no Baltar, and no Six. Although the other main characters you can think of minus those, they were pretty much present today. Yes, all in a big row. So it was a total of, what, like eight people? Eight or nine people. Yeah. yeah. And they were all at the uh, Galactica party we described from Saturday night. Except for Hatch. He was in addition to today's panel that he was not at the party last night as far as I know. No, he was there. Oh, he was there. Yeah, they were all there. Hard to see in the low lighting, but I guess they all were. They were only there for a few minutes, but he was there. That's cool. So these people, uh, boy, these people are a hoot. Because some of them are are really, in person, the exact opposite of their characters. Uh, In particular, uh, Mary McDonald, who plays Laura Roslin. 
because Laura Roslin is is a character who is so proper. prim and proper and professional, you know, with her power suits and you know, so reserved and everything. And uh, Mary McDonald is like the complete opposite of that. And Kate Vernon, who plays uh, Ellen Ty. In the show, the character uh, basically is a floozy for much of the show until she's revealed as the final Cylon. I hope, I hope we've passed the statute of limitations on spoilers for that. Because the show's over. Show's over. All bets are off. So obviously, her character changed when she came back as the final Cylon. But until then, you know, she basically was just a floozy and a slut and a party girl. Heavy on the booze. But Kate Vernon is more reserved and a lot different from that character. And basically, uh, you know, one thing that's clear is that these people are all jokers. And they kind of have a really nice camaraderie with, you know, the way they interact with each other. Just like uh, with the B5 cast. You know, you can see that these are people who all enjoyed working with each other. That they're not just there punching in a time card and, you know, clocking in their hours to get a paycheck. So, you've seen uh, the Galactica people quite a bit at several conventions, so how did this panel stick out in comparison to your other experiences? Well, this is a bit different for me because I've never seen Mary McDonald, and all the previous panels I had had Edward James Olmos in them, and he, when he's present, he is the leader of the panel. So it had to kind of leave somebody to pick up the torch on this, and I guess Mary McDonald pretty much took that torch. Pretty much, because every, almost every question was for her. And at the party before, she was pretty much leading the crowd and the speeches and the cheers. So, I mean, that was really cool to see her. And as you said, they're very close together. And all the panels I've seen with them, they seem like old friends. I mean, they really enjoy each other's company. And it was really funny to see some of the answers to the questions because they're kind of perverted in some sense because I think somebody asked the entire cast that was present, you know, what would you like to see your character do they didn't do? And a lot of the answers centered on what characters they could have slept with, one or both at the same time. You know, it was, it was kind of humorous. Yeah, pretty much the, the, uh, the panel-wide response from everyone was uh, more sex. And when somebody got asked a serious question after that, they said, what, no sex questions? I think it was Candace. Yes, it was Candace. Duala on the show, so... Uh, yeah. They're, they are definitely a bunch of jokers, which was pretty cool. Unfortunately, with this panel, we also couldn't ask any questions because the mics just disappeared into the audience. And unfortunately, again, I had a question that was for Alessandro Giuliani, a.k.a. Felix Gaeta, whereas most of the questions were for Mary McDonald, but alas, the question went unasked. And you also had a question for him, too. Yeah, I had a question for him, too, but it seemed like every time they would go to the left side of the room and right side of the room, but every time they would switch, they would immediately already have someone picked up. By what system? I don't know. I yeah. couldn't get a bearing on how they were doing this. I guess that's the trade-off we get for sitting in the very front row. Yeah, we were in the very front row, which is quite amazing. We'll talk about that when we get to the line discussion, which will be a kind of whole little mini-topic, <laughs> which I guess we're going to be pretty close to going into right now. Yeah, once we get past the, the rest of the main events. Mm. So after that, we uh, went on another line adventure for the uh, masquerade. So since you uh, have already been to DragonCon before, how would you say that this masquerade compared to last year's? It was good, but you know, I actually liked last year's more. They had this fantastic sword performer who I saw in the parade this time who could be a professional. I mean, he be, he's a complete acrobat and balances a sword pretty much on his fingertip, you know, while standing on one hand and balancing his Was this the hand. guy who was balancing two swords on his head in the parade? Yeah, he walked the entire parade with a sharpened sword on his head, vertical, I mean, balancing on the tip of the blade on the side. But he had the, he had the sword balancing on another sword which was on top of his yeah, head. Yeah, that guy, I... I've never seen anything like that at a convention. Yeah, that guy's good. And he performed the last one. I was hoping he would do it again. I mean, it was a great show, but that, that put it over the top last year for me. 
was him. Who was the MC uh, at last year's Masquerade? Was uh, Ethan Phillips from Voyager, actually. Oh, Mr. Neelix. Oh, we did a good job, but this year we had a wacky combination of George Perez from the comic book universe and, uh, and Peter, Peter David. Peter David, a very well-known science fiction author, mainly yeah, for Star were, Trek. I don't know how well they know each other, but they just played up each other so beautifully. And we should mention that Peter David was dressed as Sherlock Holmes, and they both had puppets of themselves yeah, George Perez, made by Peter David's wife. Yeah, George Perez had a Hawaiian shirt on, and the puppets had little mini costumes and shirts that matched what they were wearing as well, so that was pretty funny. It's very odd. And we didn't stick around for the winners of the adult division, but I think we have a pretty good idea who it was since the very first costume out of the gate was a Bioshock group complete with a completely amazing Big Daddy. Life-size. Life-size, totally authentic, working giant parts. armor with a working drill. I think Peter David, one of them, said, like, everyone's, everyone's screwed. Which was probably correct. Well, probably true, because there were a lot, I mean, don't get me wrong, there were a lot of good costumes, and aside from, like, one guy, there really wasn't anyone who was half-assing it. These are people who put in a lot of time and effort into their costumes, but when you got this big daddy coming right out of the gate like this, it just makes everything else look to a lower level, even though in a different light they'd look just fine if they were the ones first and the big daddy was the finisher. Yeah, there was a bunch of good costumes, but that, yeah, that was definitely, I'm sure, was the winner. We checked the Daily Dragon tomorrow. I'm sure there's going to be a picture of it. Before we get to this much-teased line discussion, uh, we noticed some, some other weird things today. One of them was on the way back to the train, we saw that horse-drawn carriage again. We mentioned that. Julius Caesar was on it the last time. This time it was a different carriage, same company it looked like. With a zombie. With a zombie leading it. And the thing is, uh, yesterday the Julius Caesar, he just kind of seemed to be out for a joyride and he wasn't taking any passengers. And it was the same deal with this zombie today. I have no idea what the hell was going on. He wasn't looking to pick anybody up, but he was just roaming around the streets in this chariot. And he's a zombie with a chariot. This must be a nightly event at Dragon Con. <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'll see somebody else tomorrow. Did you encounter any other uh, weirdos today? No, I always think of it after the fact. You know, but that, that stands out as one of the weirdest was that chariot again. Unfortunately, and I, I'm going to say this as a bit of commentary and hopefully as a public service announcement for future con-goers, if you're going to do a Spartan, I don't care if you're flabbing out of shape, but for God's sakes, do not walk around in public in a damn pair of Fruit of the Looms. Nobody wants to see your balls sticking out. Really, nobody does. That's what I encountered. Some guy who didn't even have the colors right. He was walking around in a, in a pair of blue Fruit of the Looms. I don't know what the hell this guy was thinking. He just got his junk sticking out through all of this crap. It was a really unfortunate encounter because I was coming up some stairs as he was going down the stairs. And it was something that didn't have to happen. And it will probably leave me scarred for the rest of my life. So please, anyone, if you have to be a Spartan, do it right. Please. For the sake of all of your uh, unsuspecting victims, don't have your ball sticking out. Thank you. So, moving on. The lines at DragonCon have been quite an interesting experience this weekend, haven't they? I'll, I'll let you uh, rant first before I, I have my own little rant. Well, I wasn't going to make this a whole topic, but this seems to be kind of a repeating theme, even beginning with the B5 line. And it kind of goes like this. 
you ask an employee where the line starts if you're early enough, and, you know, like the Babylon 5, we mentioned before, they put us in the wrong place. Now, if I say what happened with the Battlestar line today, that's pretty much going to sum up what happened with the Stuart line and everything before. Basically, they have this new system this year that they will not run two simultaneous lines for two separate panels if one's after the other. The panel line will only form at one hour before. That causes unofficial lines to start forming, which today they tried to keep busting up, which caused massive blocks of people to block the hallways. So we had this routine going where we formed a line, an orderly line, and they would come bust it up. We'd shift over 10 feet to the right. People would form a new line, and there'd be our messed up line next to that. And they, they did this repeatedly over and over and over until finally they formed a line outside out the door, which completely scrambled everybody that was in the front. And it's just an absolute mess. I mean, whether some fans said, you know, whether it's official or not, people are going to form a line. You might as well just make it an orderly one and control it, rather than just letting it crowd around and block the hallways. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you for your comments on that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's sort of like really a, a bad mark on you know the management of this convention that they have such bad line management ability because for one at all of these lines there's no ropes marking anything. It's just you know streams of people. And, you know, they just seem to fail to understand this notion that people are going to line up for something, whether you tell them to or not. And I swear, for as many conventions as I've been to in my life, before this weekend, I'd never heard of the concept of an unofficial line. They would keep trying to bust up these lines. It's like, well, where do you expect these people to go? They're going to get in line for this thing because they're waiting for it. Where do you want people to just disappear to before your arbitrarily determined time of you want the line to start at this time? And again, would you rather have like a disorganized mob of people just waiting around or would you rather have them in a line? These guys would come up and down the line telling us to disperse and nobody would leave. So, you know, what does that say? And we'd have this ongoing pattern where a line would start up, an employee would come along and encounter and say, hey, what's this line for? And then suddenly decide to start managing it then. Like, well, why don't you have people managing these things from the beginning so that everything is clear from the get-go? Which leads me to the next thing, information. Oh, yes. Unfortunately, even though everyone has radios and they're all talking to each other across these four hotels, there's a lot of people who don't know nothing about nothing. And you can ask someone for a basic piece of information. You ask three people the same question, you will get three answers. We had such a hassle trying to find out where the hell the line was for this damn masquerade. Some guy gave me all these convoluted directions. Some girl told us to just stand in front of the ballroom, which was completely well, that was the wrong. Worst part. You know, I got to mention, this girl was the information desk. Yeah. Bonnie's supposed to have the information. She clearly didn't know what it was. I just made up an answer. She said, oh, there's no line. You can just, you know, hang around the entrance. And if we had done that, I mean, there was already a line of hundreds of people deep just around the corner. Which was outside on the street. We would have never have known. Yeah, we would have totally been screwed and not gotten into this event because of this. What else has been another problem that we wanted to mention, aside from information and line management? Oh, yeah, one thing they do actually do well. Uh, Check badges. Yeah, they, these people are badge Nazis. They're not going to get one by them. You ain't getting into any room, no matter how big or small, if you don't have a badge on. Yeah, they could be a 100-person room or a 3,000-person room. There is a guy, and he will check every single badge, no matter how closely you're packed, how t tall or small, whether you have a costume on or not. They are checking those badges. Yeah, I, I wish they had the same diligence in some other areas as they do with their badge policies. They could use that kind of strength in their line policies and their information policies. Then that, that would make things run very, very smoothly. I believe that about does it for today. Do you have any uh, 
other comments you want to make about today? We always think of something, and I'm sure it's going to be on the first portion of tomorrow. Yeah, I'm sure it'll it'll come to us the second that I press the stop button. So I guess tomorrow we better make sure we get everything uh, done because there's not going to be a Tuesday podcast. Well, tomorrow's going to be kind of a half day. It's a little bit slow, so we'll have plenty of time to think of a nice wrap-up. Well, in that case, I guess we are done for today. This is uh, the Day 3 Roundup of Gundam at DragonCon. Stay tuned for more. Happy birthday. Hard to say. Well, you could say thank you. Thank you. Gundam. Jim, what the hell is the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? Bones, I don't want to be lectured.
said, I just the picture of this young man with Tom Hanks. Well, he had not heard the picture of himself with Tom Hanks. Take it by one of For those of you who haven't seen any of the things that we're talking about, you can see them on my website, www.menardinemorephotography.com, a very complicated title for a website. www.menardinemorephotography.com. They should be able to
Now, they were doing this in Hebrew, and, and the congregation was standing, and they chanted it and shouted it fervently, almost like a revival meeting, loud and discordant and, and, and passionate. And, uh, and my father said to me, don't look. Well, Okay, I have a ten-year-old, and the, yeah, that's just the first way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to do some, with half their feet. The congregation got their eyes covered with their hands, or their, their prayer shawls over their heads. And I, I saw that, but I thought, I've got to see what's going on here, because there's something magical happening. And I peeked, and I saw these guys with their hands stretched to the congregation like that. It's, an, it's, it's magical. Every time I do that flashball for a while, look at <laughs> so I had no idea why they were doing it or what it meant. But I was I was captured by it and, and I decided I had to learn how to do that. So I practiced it. Years of diligent practice and self-denial. You have to do that left hand, right hand, anytime, any place. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. And because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, they're just 
floating around her. And then all of a sudden you realize the burst in water and it's swirling around her. Right. Right. I don't, I just, it just hit me. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you. Thank you. So, by the way, uh, a couple of days after that episode on the air, for the first time, I was in Cleveland. She's doing a period of something like this with lots of people. And I'm being driven to the location uh, on a Saturday afternoon. We stopped the traffic light. car pulled up beside us, and a pretty young lady recognized me. And she raised her hand and she did that. <laughs> well, I was kind of upset because it was the first time I'd ever come back to me in public. It's come back to me hundreds of thousands of times. <laughs> but this was the first time ever. So I rolled down the window and I said to her, can you do it with your left hand? Is there a difference when you're directing a sci-fi 
Well, sure, sure. The, uh, the, the science fiction project always includes special effects and, and, uh, and uh, uh, computer-generated images that you don't use typically in engineering companies. So uh, the project is much more complicated, much more expensive to do, much more time-consuming. You have a much broader canvas to work on, much more theatrical canvas to work on than you're doing with directing something like that. You know, the baby, which is very entertaining, mostly in apartments, the guy and the baby in front of you. Well, now, you talked about directing DJ Hooker, and you talked about directing uh, Star Trek 3 and 4. How? The most, fun, the, the most fun, the most fun was doing DJ Hooker because I got to tell Bill Shatner what to do. <laughs> Uh, I have a lot of respect for him and his writers and uh, the lot of ways to get there. I've known Chris 
I think they're very talented people, very creative people. And uh, I don't think there's much else that would have pulled me out of my, uh, my own mind. But for this situation, I decided I'll, I'll take a chance with them and go to the ride. And I'm happy I did it. I think it worked out well. It's amazing. It's amazing. I did a lot of questions. 
but not the equivalent science fiction essentially. Uh, the bad guys were the Indians, and, and when it became politically incorrect to point to the Indians constantly at being the bad guys, we created the Klingons. <laughs> That's the way it works. You've got to have bad guys. So, uh, and the Klingons were a very intelligent, interesting idea, I thought. Anyway, uh, I did a lot of work. That was on, on Raw High for the Penny's Wood. I was on Gunsmoke with MRS several times. Uh, I was on, on Wacky Train and, and uh, I did all of them. In fact, the very last job that I did as an actor before we started from the story was an episode of Gunsmoke in an episode called The Treasure of John Walking Fox. And I played John Walking Fox and did the character in that show. And so I, uh, I've always been useful playing the other, playing the alien type, the person who's other than the typical. Well, now, the zombie movie, not the same. Um, I, can't, I can't wait, I'm getting it. <laughs> I think it's being thought around. <laughs> 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 well, that's it. <laughs> you don't understand. My husband's in the audience when you don't understand. She likes black fire original pictures with fast watch. Uh, uh, I played a robot. 
I'm playing the European dictator again, the South American dictator again, the Asian guy. I, thought, I don't think so. I, there's nothing, I, there's, and there's no internal life to any of these characters. It's all charade. And I love working on the internal life of a character. So I had to give it up. I said, I've got to, I've got to leave. And I did. And I, I went off and I love it. But I did two seasons of it. And I'm happy I did it. But it was fantastic. Yeah. Well, you started on In Search of a Meander somewhere else, which is very normal to any Dragon Con thing. Many of these people can annotate there. But when talking about In Search of, um, you weren't only the narrator, but you also wrote. I, I, I wrote a couple of episodes and I directed a couple of episodes, but I was there primarily the other ones. Occasionally, occasionally. I, I did some extensive work on the subject of Vincent Van Gogh, famous artist Vincent Van Gogh. And um, I, I proposed an episode about him, about Vincent, and uh, because there were some interesting questions about what his life was really all about. And and we did do that episode. I went to various places in Europe, in France, in England, and so forth, where he had lived and worked. And uh, I visited the hospital where he was hospitalized after he cut it here. Uh, I, was, I was in the room where he died, uh, in his brother's arms. It was a very emotional experience. I, mean, I became very closely uh, involved in the study of this, this person. Uh, and I toured the United States doing a one-man show called Vincent. And uh, in fact, I played it uh, here in Atlanta at the Street Playhouse some years ago. Uh, we eventually videotaped it, and uh, as a Guthrie Theater, and that videotape I think is still available. And there are still occasionally actors who go out and, and do this play, which is, makes me very happy to the play and the life, it's kind of like I'm not doing it anymore. But I did, we did do an inserted episode about Mr. Banco, which I proposed, and I'm very glad to be able to get that down. Did you have any episodes that really Yeah, I do. I do. 
I also believe, and I've written about this somewhat, I, I believe in what's known as the universal consciousness, universal spirit. I believe that there are certain things that go through the human race at one time or another and move from, from back to back. Just like whale song moves from one pack of whales to another across the oceans, I think there are certain kinds of, of uh, nonverbal communicative ideas, of uh, uh, conceptions, or whatever you want to call them, that do travel through the human race at one time or another. You'll find this in the, in the world of artistry, amongst artists. Various artists will be coming up dealing with similar ideas at the same time without the other having to communicate with each other. So there must be some kind of, I'm, I'm quite convinced, of some kind of universal consciousness that we all experience, but we don't really quite know exactly how it's happening on a conscious level, but it happens without us having to be aware of it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you always have that as a child? Did you were always that artistic and wanting to let that side of your 
Uh, when I was a kid, uh, somebody asked me to sing a song, and I, I did, and I found myself on stage as Hansel in a production of Hansel and Gretel. And then I was hired to sing in choir because I could carry a tune and I had a reasonably decent voice. Uh, when I left Mission Impossible in 1971, I was, uh, I, I was hired to act in a western uh, in Spain with a little creature called Tatlo. And I was playing the heavy and I was going, oh, you saw it. <laughs> and uh, if, you, if you saw Tatlo, you saw my naked butt.
came out more uh, with the nation of the body snatchers. It was a remake in the 50s, but yeah. very different, very much darker version. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, uh, Tom Cotton, director, had a very interesting vision for that movie. I thought he did it very, very well. Uh, I had a bizarre experience making that film. Uh, we shot it in San Francisco. Much of it was shot on the streets at night, during the street locations. One night, I finished a scene and went back to my trailer. And as I was going up the steps into my trailer, I heard a voice behind me, a female voice, saying, Mr. Nimoy, would you send an autograph for my 16-year-old son? I said, sure, and I turned, and I saw a hand holding a piece of paper, and, uh, and I signed the autograph, and I handed it back, and I stepped, I never even got a good look at first, I stepped back into my trailer. A little while later, I was called back to work, and I went back on the set. And when we finished, when we wrapped at about midnight, we went back to the motel, and we all agreed we were going to go out and have a meal together at the company, uh, Donatello and Fulcoffin and some others. I went to my room in the motel, and well, first I, I realized I didn't have my key. So I went to the desk, and I said, I don't have my key, and they gave me a ticket, and I went into the room. I stepped in the room, and I realized that quickly that somebody had been in my bed, and some of my clothes were missing, and a wall was identification, not a lot of money, but identification and so forth. I called the police and I said I have had a robbery. And uh, they said, well, uh, uh, we'll send you a form to fill out. It doesn't look like a police officer at all. It's like a piece of paper. Okay, and we'll send it over in the morning. You fill it out and file a report. I said, okay. And I went out to dinner, came back an hour or two later, and I walked into my room with a phone around. And I picked it up and answered hello. And a lady said, hi, uh, I suppose you're missing the thing by now. And I said, yes, I am. She said, do you remember you signed an autograph to my 16-year-old son? I said, yes, I do remember. Evidently, <coughs> when I went back out, she stepped into my trailer and picked up the room key to my room at the motel. And it had the name of the motel in my room number. So she went directly there and she put the assignments. We had this scary conversation. I tried to keep her on the phone because I learned from the TV show that's been supposed to do. I don't know of any script that he has from anybody in San Francisco. 
Well, I said, here's my name and phone number, and if it comes up, please call me. Minutes later, the phone rang, and she said, Scrooge just landed on my desk from San Francisco. And I said, do you mind giving me the name and the address? She said, sure. She gave it to me. So I called the police, and I said, I now have the name and address. She's <laughs> <laughs> got my stuff. And uh, now they send over a policeman. Yeah. And he said, okay. He said, we have some choices. He said, if you file this report, and we go in and arrest her, you will uh, we'll be filing charges, and you will be called back to testify against her. That's one option. The other option is I can call her, and I testify myself a police officer, and ask her if she simply wants to return your stuff, and that could be the end of it. I said, I'd rather do that, frankly. He said, okay. As he was heading for the phone, there was a knock on the door. We opened the door, and there's a bellman with all my stuff. He <laughs> had just brought it back and deposited it downstairs, but not the end of it.
more common. 
complex because we're doing the we're doing the actor doing the role because I'm asking I'm asking the actor when the moment came that you thought I don't think I was hot. Uh, um, I 
some other national news thing. I mean, it's like big time news here in Atlanta. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car. And a voice was screaming, Holy, Holy Jesus, Jesus where are these goddamn animals? Need a cake, but you don't want something boring from the local supermarket or bakery? In the South Florida area, try EpicSugarWorks.com. This bakery specializes in creating cakes based off of your favorite anime series, 
video game character, or whatever custom design you're looking for. Their online store also features anime and video game themed chocolate lollipops, as well as gift certificates if you want to give something to somebody. So if you're looking for a cake that's above the norm, go to EpicSugarWorks.com. It's epically delicious. Open. God damn it! Open! Prime, you said the Matrix would light our darkest hour. Magnus! I want the Matrix! Never! This segment of Gundam at MAHQ is brought to you by Petco. Hey everybody, this is Chris. You're listening to Gundam, no longer at Dragon Con. It's the end of Monday. We're sitting inside Dale's house, so we've just got some quick thoughts to wrap up the fourth and final day of Dragon Con. But first we'll have to start with, yet again, some other things we missed over the past few days. On Saturday, we had a rather strange encounter with two gentlemen who looked a little bit too much like the actors they were dressing up as. The first was a rather fat old guy who looked uncannily like Jimmy Doohan, a.k.a. Montgomery Scott of Star Trek. And you see this guy and in the uniform, which is a very well-done TOS movie-era uniform, and if it wasn't because... Jimmy Doohead's been dead for years, you'd almost think this guy was him. I mean, what did you think, Dale, about seeing that guy? Yeah, I concur. I mean, almost had to do a double take. I mean, he even looked the approximate age Jimmy Doohan looked later in life. The right weight, the jowls, the mustache. I mean, that's, I think he was about a 95% match. Definitely made me do a double take. Yeah, like, this guy looked like he could have walked, like, straight off the set of Undiscovered Country. That's how much he looked like him. Later on, we encountered a guy dressed as Mad Max who looked very, very much like Mel Gibson. Remember that guy? Yeah, I mean, this was kind of a late at night. He was kind of in the hotel lobby. He was posing for pictures, but, you know, he had the dirt and grime from, you know, Mad Max from the movies had. And he had the short hair. He had the weapon. He had the weapons. jacket. I mean, he looked like he actually been through some action, so he kind of, like, put some effort into that costume to make it look very realistic. Which is odd that we didn't see him earlier during the day in the parade because there was a Mad Max session with Lord Humongous or whatever his name is driving that crazy car and all these spiked maniacs and, you know, all these other psychopaths were there and old Mad Max wasn't. Also, this was on Sunday, we had a rather strange encounter with some blue furry guy at a bar. Uh, There's a very upscale bar inside the Marriott called Pulse and there were a couple of you know, events going on there, including the Sword and Laser podcast meetup that I attended. But on Sunday, we saw sitting at this very high-class bar some, like, guy in, like, some full-body blue tiger outfit. And everybody else was actually out of costume and normal. Yeah. Right in the center of the bar is this guy in absolute full helmet on, I mean, head on everything. And he's just sitting there having a drink, and the very first thing that came to my head was, where's that most Isley Cantina music? What, did you think that? Yeah, he was just, actually, he was sitting there with a drink in his hand, full costume. I mean, just like, as if he wasn't even wearing a costume. He was just an animal sitting at a bar. Yeah, like, like, if that was totally normal. And then later, uh, well, actually, no, this was on Saturday, another encounter. We went to the uh, Georgia Aquarium for a Dragon Con special event, and while I was waiting to get inside to um, 
get it in there, there was a line you could take those annoying photos that you don't want that they try to sell you later. And sometimes, I guess, the photos were with Spider-Man, so the guy in a Spider-Man costume, but he was kind of just there on his break or something. And since he's standing there in his Spider-Man costume, he asked me what time it is. Obviously, he can't really check himself. Then a few minutes later, we see him at the uh, cafeteria line, and um, he sits down for dinner with some girl dressed like Mary Jane, and he actually did pull off his mask to eat dinner. We were wondering if he would go, like, Spidey route and just pull up the mask enough to show his mouth, or if he would actually take off the whole thing, and he did take off the whole thing. And it's just rather surreal that you see all these people, you know, having dinner at, you know, the cafe area of this fancy aquarium. Some are dressed, like, in Star Trek outfits and all, but then you see Mary Jane and Spider-Man sitting there, but they work there. So that was kind of weird. Moving on to Monday's events, we started off the morning by attending the Felicia Day panel. So since neither of us have really seen The Guild, which is uh, the web video series that she's famous for, aside from uh, Joss Whedon's Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, what did you think of that episode that they screened for us and all of the discussion about that show? Well, that was kind of fun. And these are like little short eight-minute episodes based around World of Warcraft. You know, and the people who play it and different personalities. They screened episode three of the new season. and it looks No, it's episode one of season three. Oh, episode one of season three. I got it back. You, you, got, it dys- you got dyslexic there. I've never seen the show like you, so. <laughs> I've never seen it either. But it looks, it looks pretty funny. I mean, it's produced on a budget, but, I mean, she definitely knows what she's doing. She's the mastermind behind the show, creating it, writing it, and filming it. And she even said she even got fans to do, you know, the flash animation for the credits and the bumpers. And then, as she got more successful, she went back and paid the same fan. You know, hired them on to actually work on the show. So that was kind of cool. She did get a couple very strange questions, including the one about the fanfic. Yeah, what was that fan... What, you, you take this one, because... Well, it was about the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. You know, Bad Horse is the leader of the villains, and he's an actual horse, if you see it at the end of the musical. And someone wrote a fanfic about, you know, Bad Horse and Penny getting together, and then sort of R-rated, or NC-17 way. And she looked kind of shocked when the person went up to hand her the script. To sign this. Uh, yeah, and then... Actually, Felicia reminded the fan, like, you realize it's an actual horse. And then the fan answered, well, it's also the leader of an evil organization, so it's, he's probably intelligent enough to give informed consent for any kind of sexual relations. <laughs> and Felicia responded, she's like, all right, give it to me, but... Uh, don't ever do that I'm, again. I'm not even going to look at this. I'm just going to sign it and get it away from me. Yeah, she actually did say, don't ever do that again, please. <laughs> yeah. And then there was some other weirdo who, uh, what, he asked for her phone number or something? Oh, yeah, some guy. Either, I couldn't catch it. It was a phone number marriage proposal. I don't know what's with these fans and what they're thinking. It, it just made it kind of an awkward moment. I, I, I don't get these people. I mean, yes, she's hot, but that doesn't mean that, like, you're just some weirdo who's going to go up to her to convention like, excuse me, can I have your phone number? It just brings and, it to a screeching halt. It just makes things awkward for everybody. So that was just... Very odd, but uh, it was an interesting panel, and even though I don't play WoW, uh, shows seem kind of interesting, so I'll probably be checking it out. After that, we had to promptly exit that room and then line up to go back in that same room again for the next panel, which was the Star Trek guest panel. Had uh, quite a few uh, guests on it. Louise Fletcher, probably best known as uh, Kai Wynn on Deep Space Nine. The real-life wife of Dr. Phlox from Enterprise. Admiral Paris from Voyager, Dwight Schultz, a.k.a. Barkley from Next Gen and Voyager, and Kate Vernon, who we all know as Ellen Ty on Galactica, but also played a one-shot role on Voyager, 
And then there was a nice little surprise guest, and who was that? Well, you forgot Alan Ruck as well, I believe. Oh, yeah, Alan Ruck, good old Captain Harriman, everything's coming on Tuesday, including my spine. But one very happy guest that was not on the list but showed up was Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, this guy's quite a character. Uh, now, you and I have both seen him before at Screamfest last year, so we kind of knew what we were in for with this guy and his stories. Uh, what did you think of his appearance this time? Oh, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, they went with the introductions, and as soon as they got to him, I mean, he absolutely relishes being at a convention, especially a Star Trek one. And he knows some fans hate him for being the one who offed Kirk, and he... He, he revels in he it. He revels in it, and he offers, if there's ever another chance, he'll off him again. Or if they want to take Picard in a two-for-one deal, or even <laughs> Denny Crane, if there's a chance for that. I mean, he, he really hands it up for the audience, but I mean, it, it's a lot of fun to watch. And, and he had some, uh, some amusing barbs aimed uh, directly at Shatner. Oh, yeah, he took some real shots. I think he... Uh, you know I, mean? I, I think he was half-kidding about them. <laughs> He was half kidding. He also mentioned about Rick Berman. He said the pay was terrible, but the food was great. Yeah, uh, one thing that you have to understand about Malcolm McDowell is um, people ask him about, you know, how he creates these complex characters and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, generic con question number 2,762. And at ScreamFest, he explained quite clearly that he views himself as a working actor, that he sometimes takes crap roles because they pay money, and that when he does a role, uh, it's basically like turning on a, night, a light switch. He turns it on, he becomes a character. He turns it off, he's not the character. And that when he's playing these characters, he's not thinking about motivations. He's thinking about what's being served for lunch. Right, he just takes direction. Act. I mean, the director tells him what they want, and he just does it to a T. And he made this clear several times at the Scream Pest panel, yeah, but about four, uh, about four or five times, people just kept asking about all these characters, and he just had to make it clear over and over again. It's not the kind of actor that he is, so... You know, I thought it was amusing that he mentioned the food again, commenting that the pay was low on Generations, but the, the food was good. Interestingly, towards the end of the panel, when he decided to leave, he just got up and said, oh, it was great, see you guys later, i got to go take a piss. And he literally just left. Yeah, about ten minutes before the end, too. He <laughs> yeah. announced it quite loudly. It was yes. like a real, real riot. And then afterwards, we saw him uh, walking around backstage uh, through the curtains. Anything else that stuck out at you about uh, that panel? It was kind of nice to see so many people. I was actually expecting to see much less on a Monday afternoon as far as Star Trek guests. But, I mean, we got, what, about seven people sitting there, some pretty good ones. I mean, yeah. Louis Fletcher, an Oscar winner, you know. So that was actually worth attending as a last panel of the day, a good way to wrap it up. So uh, share with everyone your, your observation upon seeing goateed Alan Ruck. He looks a lot like a certain actor we both know. Who would be... Uh, the, the comment was that he's Edward Norton 10 years from now, and looking at him from that point on, I could not help but escape that observation. Yeah, you guessed it. I mean, actually, we saw him before the Vulcan previous. Yeah, but that was a few years ago. But just it just sort of clicked. <laughs> yeah. He looks an awful lot like Look, Look up a recent picture of Alan Ruck with his goatee. And then look at Edward Norton and tell me that those two guys don't look like, like the same now. So That's where Norton head, is headed. You can just look at that picture. I guess so. After that, we just had a quick look at the autograph room, and you got a nice uh, little picture with uh, Kate Vernon. And if Kate Vernon's listening, I'm sorry my flash went off so bright, because I, I think I stunned her. Yeah, she was stunned momentarily. <laughs> so you ended up getting a photo with Ellen Ty, and Tanya got a photo with Saul Ty. So That's really funny. Actually. Rather interesting coincidence. Got the two Cylon. Couple, couple there. You gotta, uh, you gotta like frame those side by side. Absolutely, that's gonna be my avatar. <laughs> Let's see, anything else? Did we encounter anything strange today, other than just the weirdos at the panels? It was kind of a half day. Yeah, it's a lot emptier. We skipped the dealer's room completely because, like I told Chris on the way back, 
You know, it's not really a dealer's type of convention. It's not a trade show like Megacon would be a little bit more of, you know, a collector show where you'd have a lot of stuff to look for. DragonCon Steelstream is actually pretty puny for a convention of that size. So we just bypassed it completely. And plus, we well, at least I ran out of money, so it's not like it's not like I could have uh, bought anything, even if I really wanted to. So overall, for the whole convention, how would you rate this year versus last year, since this was your second Dragon Con? I think it exceeded it because we had the William Shatter, Leonard Nimoy, and Patrick Stewart. Any one of those people by themselves is enough to headline even a large convention like Dragon Con. But having them all there together and spread out enough, we could actually see all of them in the same weekend. Is, is a real amazing thing, I think. Uh, it was a lot of fun just seeing them banter together and just being part of the experience. Yeah, definitely. And for me, uh, this certainly was the, uh, the best convention that I've been to so far. In the future, I hope to be hitting up bigger cons like uh, San Diego Comic Con and others. So for now, this is the peak for me of being able to see so many actors that I enjoy their work all in one place. It's, it's actually kind of hard to believe that in one single day, in one single room, we saw Nimoy, Shatner, Stewart, and a ginormous chunk of the main cast of Galactica. All on Sunday. Yeah, all in one single day. So it's taking a little while to, to process all of that. Definitely a very enjoyable con experience, and it was absolutely uh, worth the trip. So I think with that, uh, we've said everything needs to be said about Dragon Con 2009, and I believe that will wrap up this special episode of Gundam. Anything else to say? No, that's a wrap. I believe that's it. All right. You've been listening to Gundam at MHQ, coming at you from Dragon Con 2009. Catch you later. Stewie, I'm not really much of a fast food eater. Yeah? Can you read my mind? Can you tell what I'm thinking right now? I'm thinking shut up and get a salad. I want some McNuggets. We'll get to you, Brent. I want a hamburger. No, a cheeseburger. I want a hot dog. I want a milkshake. You'll get nothing unlike it. Uh, hello? Yes, welcome to McDonald's. Can I help you? Uh, yeah, we're gonna get, uh, uh, two McChicken sandwiches and a Diet Coke and, uh, uh what do you want, Michael? A McDLT. No, I already told you, they don't make those anymore. You know, sometimes it's a regional thing. You could ask. No McDonald's anywhere makes a McDLT anymore. I'd love a shamrock shake if they got any of those. It's September, Jonathan. I'm just saying they have all the ingredients for a McDLT. <laughs> Just hang on, all right? There's a lot of us. There's a lot of... It's a big order. What time do they stop serving breakfast? It's three o'clock. Some of them serve breakfast all day. No, they serve breakfast all day! Do they have beer? Gundam at MHQ is a Shinjuku station in the MHQ production. All right, everybody got your bowling shoes? I don't have my shoes. Jonathan, we were just up at the counter. Why didn't you get your shoes? I don't have my shoes either. What the hell? You need your shoes to bowl. Now, why exactly can I not wear my loafers? What is the danger there? Because, Patrick, because, Patrick, those are the rules. Well, I think it's just because they want another dollar fifty from me. All right, I'm putting our names in. Brent? No, no, don't put Brent. Oh. Put Rock Kickass. I don't know how to change it. I already typed it in. For mine, put Dirk Diggler. I'm not going to put everyone as a fake name. How do you want to do the teams? How about the white guys against the black guys? Patrick, don't be an instigator. I have to pee. Brent, take Michael to the bathroom, please. Okay. Look at me. I've got girl boobs.